Hello and welcome to episode 186 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies for the casual spike. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Stanislav, as always, it's good to see you. You know what's funny, Stan? Make me laugh. (laughs) Uh, Nothing I'm actually going to say, but it's one of those weeks where we get to take a backseat we get to we get to kick our feet up, we get to not write any notes, and we have an extra special guest on the line. That's right. Unfortunately, David, the Godfather, had to take the day off for this episode, so we have asked a certain fellow podcaster to join us in Dave's absence, and it is my absolute genuine pleasure to welcome to the show one of the hosts of MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina. It's CCR. Hey, Chris. Hey, guys. How's it going? Oh man, I'm so glad to finally have you on the podcast. We, you know, we were talking pre-show, and I was like, Chris, I don't know how it took us this long to actually just have the simple thing of having one podcast person on another podcast. Well, it's it's tough. I I feel like you kind of have to have a reason to, at least like a plausible deniability reason to like have <laughs> someone on the podcast. And I don't know, like I love talking about magic, but if you're one of the people who likes to hear me talk about magic, you can always hear me talk about it. But you know, you need a reason. And so if we're going to talk about living end, then I'm, I'm happy to be the guy. Spoilers. <laughs> you know, well, and also what's, what's t- true too, is like, you know, you guys are extremely regular. You and Lee over at Grindcast, you rarely miss weeks and we do too. And I'll tell you what I don't want to do is do two podcasts in a week. That's fair. We're actually, this is kind of perfect. We may not be recording this week because uh, Lee has had some serious uh, flooding related apartment problems that uh, you know, so I don't want to put too much pressure on him. And, uh, I mean, second spoiler alert, I did win an RCQ this past weekend <sighs> and, uh, it would be a shame to not record any podcast immediately after winning a tournament. So, you know, this was, this is a nice opportunity to make up for that. First of all, congrats. Second of all, I know we're just a couple minutes in, but I already need to go briefly off script. <laughs> I, I'm, I've, I'm dying to gush. I have to gush. I've been listening to Grindcast since, I think, 2018, back when it was a show with you and Collins. I've been a fan for so long. I think you're truly one of the best constructed ma- magic podcasts out there. Oh, yeah. Always on my short list when like there's some thread on Reddit or someone asks me, like, what are good magic podcasts? Grindcast rules. Grindcast rules. I honestly remember the first Grindcast episode I ever heard, and yours is the only podcast I can say that about. Which episode was that? It was late fall, early winter 2018. Ross had like just won an SCG open with Phoenix, but it hasn't hadn't really taken over the format yet. But it was the uh, week right before SCG regionals, and it, I think the title was like "What to Play at SCG Regionals," <laughs> and, <laughs> and you just like hooked me immediately. And I was so impressed with you and Collins, and even in this post Collins era, I think you and Lee keep the show at such a high level. Um, I learned a lot from it. It was a huge inspiration for the dive down, I, like. Part of me feels like if Grindcast didn't exist, I don't know if the dive down would, because you guys helped set the bar and, and even demonstrated to us a potential model for you know what a magic podcast could sound like if it isn't Hall of Famers and, and magic pros actually running it. So thank you for being on the show and thank you for the, the show that you make as well. You're, you're going to make me cry, um, <laughs> but I feel like um, y'all have have like taken that model and you've run with it and done and really done something special. You know, y'all. 
uh, provide kind of a more structured experience than we do. We are a much more, you know, shoot from the hip. I don't think I've ever had, you know, you were joking about no show notes, but I am looking at a 10 page Google doc right here. That's short for us. Uh, I, I genuinely, when we have a guest, I do not make notes because I'm just like, you know, we're going to talk, you're going to tell us your information. And so this, this level of preparation and your segments and stuff, like I love it. And, uh, it is, it has been inspirational for me. I've thought I've loved your like live segments. I love your interviews and things like that. Um, and I appreciate the kind of like new things that you're doing, the little ba- boundaries that you're breaking. Cause you know, magic podcasting is, uh, a static art form in many ways. And I think we can do better. Uh, it just takes a lot of energy and, and time. And, and so, you know. Well, there's one thing we have in spades. It's just it's boatloads of time with <laughs> yeah. kids and jobs and right, right. Uh, but anyway, uh, no, it's it's uh, thanks for that, uh, Chris. And you know, it's awesome to have an, another uh, awesome podcaster on the pod. And I'm looking forward to this week's episode. What are we doing this week, Stan? Yeah, and this week's show, we're doing a very special follow up to our last modern deck dive just a couple of weeks ago. Now today, we're cascading once again, but this time into Living End. Chris joins us on the heels of a very of a very exciting RCQ win with the deck, and we're looking forward to picking his brain as a master of the strategy in classic dive down fashion, uh, patent pending. But Chris, I know you are a law professional. Maybe you can finally help <laughs> us secure that patent and make sure no other magic podcast ever really does that. Really up. I think what you actually need is a copyright, not a patent, but we, we can oh, go this over guy. all that later. This wow. guy. Free legal advice on the pod. You heard it here first. Before all that, though, let's get into just a quick bit of housekeeping. Bunch of new patrons to thank this week. We've got David M., Hunter J., Scott P., Bryce B., Ethan H., Charlie S., Colin M. Thank you all so much. How did we... This is This is absurd. This is two weeks in a row with seven new citizens of the nation. Uh, so I don't know what we're doing out there, but we appreciate all of you wanting to help us out and help keep us going and help you know pay for all the little things that it actually does take to keep this podcast going. So thank you so much, all of you. Looking forward to seeing you in the Discord and uh, just playing some games with you. Yeah, and also thanks to two increased patrons, KCG and Anders B. We see you as well, and we appreciate you too. We also got a new review. I love reviews. We got one from BDJ, Dear Down Dads, a, a fellow magic dad. <laughs> My favorite thing about this review is the question that gets asked is, how do you all have time to play magic, report, record a podcast, and test your skills during the weekend events? And uh, the answer to all those is I don't. The answer to all that is I neglect my day job. <laughs> and I stay up way too late on evenings and weekends. I don't even have kids, and I don't really know where you're supposed to find time to test. So I... Uh, not uh, not the person to answer this question. <laughs> you know, one of my secrets is actually after the kid goes down and it's just like evening time and my wife watches like prestige TV on Netflix or HBO, I'm just sitting on the couch next to her like grinding leagues and, and complaining about my opponent drawing chalice again. <laughs> that That is actually pretty much my, my go-to. Uh, my partner tends to play you know cozy games during the evening and then i can sit next to her on my laptop it's it's really nice oh my goodness it's i can't recommend it highly enough she's playing calico right now uh oh i hear that's really cool it's one of the cutest is that the painter dog it's uh you start like a cat cafe and it's it's very like you know kind of like queer friendly queer coded and uh just the the art style is very adorable and i 
you know, it, it looks lovely so far. You can pet all kinds of different animals. Oh man, I just want to pet animals. Oh, Chicory is the painting dog, which I also want to play. The, the, my problem is, uh, y'all, is that I got a Steam Deck, and now I just play Steam Deck on the couch. My wife is watching something I don't really care about. Problem in quotes. <laughs> <laughs> I could, I did install Arena on it, but um, we're going long in the tooth already. Thankfully, we we do not have a breakdown this episode, so we can just focus on this and then get into the dive down. But we do have to talk more about the Patreon. Uh, you heard the seven new citizens of the nation. If you are interested in, you know, joining the nation, if you want to get some swag sent your way, if you want to just help keep us going, you want to join the Discord, Patreon.com/slash the dive down. We're also Brought to you by Mana Traders using code the Dive Down fifteen uh, for the awesome rental service. Mana Traders gets you now ten percent off your first two months of rental service. It's still awesome, still worth it. And of course, Barrister and Man. I'm just gonna do all of them. Let's just run through these. Barrister and Man, awesome grooming products, awesome home fragrance products, awesome soaps, things like that. Chris, you should check out Barrister and Man. You're a fellow beard bro. And their beard oil is awesome. I've been meaning to for a while. I do have a beard oil that I am pretty loyal to, though. So I, I may check them out for some some other things. But it's, Well, here's the thing. One, it's really reasonably costed. And you get 15% off your first order using the code dive down 15 All right. Well, you know, you, you may have convinced me. I'll, I'll give it a shot. I, I heard what uh, Sandalwood last episode. Oh, and Sandalwood. Seville is, a, is another Seville. favorite. And the and the lavender, those are the yeah. ones. Oh man, La- waves is really good too. I love waves if you like aquatic scents. But uh, and then last but not least, NRG Nerd Rage Gaming. You can get eight percent off your order. Uh, doesn't give anything back to us. We just want to k- help support them. Help give you cheaper cards. Use code Dive Eight for eight percent off your NRG order. <sighs> <sighs> That's some housekeeping, Stan. Oh yeah, oh yeah, that was fun. But let's get it to the meat and potatoes of this episode. Chris mentioned it. I confirmed it. It's living end week. Before we really get into the deck dive in earnest, um, and of course, we're going to talk about overall strategy, individual cards, best practices when playing the deck, maybe some matchups. I want to talk about Chris's perspective and history with the deck because this latest iteration of living end is not your first foray into this style of deck or strategy. Is that true? Right. I mean, I've I've been playing living end more or less forever uh including when it was nowhere close to playable this obviously this blue living end deck is not the first iteration of the cascade combo deck in modern uh it really was kind of it was the first modern deck that i ever bought in paper and actually invested in i had kind of been out of magic for a while and then i just uh kind of towards the end of law school really wanted to start actively playing magic again uh Amonkhet came out and i you know had a lot of the more expensive cards for living in sitting in my collection and i just thought ah, this deck looks fun i'll put it together i'll give it a shot built jund living end with you know simian spirit guides fulminator mages played it in a couple of tournaments uh took it to an open made the finals of that open and in a lot of ways that one tournament experience gave me kind of the confidence that I needed to propose to Collins, hey, do you want to start a podcast together? And kind of like I owe a lot to the living end concept as like part of my like identity as a magic player and also just allowing me the the confidence to pursue content creation generally. Um, and then I've just kind of kept up with it. And then when it became the good deck in like one of the top decks in the format, 
uh, as, you know, a very different iteration in this kind of controlling combo mono blue shell. Uh, that was kind of an exciting moment for me as I got to, you know, not have to feel guilty about playing my pet deck in the format. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's what you're saying makes me think, Chris, like we didn't actually write much history about this deck because, I mean, uh, and typically we do. Uh but I forgot that Living End is not like Rhinos, where Rhinos is fairly contemporary and doesn't really need a huge history lesson. But what did Living End used to be like? Like, if you've been playing it for so long, like, what, what was its general, what, what was its construction like back then? So despite having a lot of things in common, like the Cascaders and the, well, you know, you had worse Cascaders, you were playing Demonic Dread, and now you get to play Shardless Asian. Just a huge gap in quality of those cards. So that alone is a massive upgrade to the deck. But... Uh, the elementals, the free spells, force of negation is just an incredible card. You know, those make the deck operate on a fun in a fundamentally different way. It was this kind of weird uh, Simeon Spirit Guide Fulminator Mage. Uh, that was your early game was like maybe take you off a land or two. So then I can force through this living end and put these weird monsters into play. Uh, not that the monsters in the current version are not weird, but uh, and we do have like giant whale type creatures. Yeah. Which is cool that you get to have those in modern. But uh, so that iteration of the deck was focused on a, a kind of different thing. You weren't really able to play spells that mattered it outside of cascading. You were just trying to do something to disrupt your opponent. Uh, a lot of times you were a land destruction deck because... I was generally main decking several Beast Withins and Fulminator Mages. And with Simeon Spirit Guide, a lot of times you'd go like turn two, Stone Rain you, turn three, Stone Rain you, force through a living end that Stone Rains you again. And so that was your disruption, was cutting them off of their mana. And, you know, now we get to just play actual spells that are really, really good. Something I was thinking about uh, just like an hour or two ago while I was getting ready for dinner and really thinking about what we're going to talk about on today's show since we have no notes, um, according to lore. <laughs> I know, uh, Chris, that you used to be a big fan of Is It Phoenix, especially in modern. And I had this light bulb moment where it's just like, these decks are kind of oddly similar in that so much of the early turns these days are just like casting these one mana cantrips, setting up your eventual position to then find like your one payoff card. Phoenix required you to cast a bunch of spells. This one really requires you to cast one spell, but it almost feels to me like there's a lot of overlap in the play patterns. And I wonder if that's something that resonates with you, um, you know, without necessarily getting to the specific differences between the two and, you know, how grief or um, you know, yeah. removal Sweden Phoenix might impact it. But do you feel like they're on a similar wavelength? I do. And I think that one of the reasons that I'm attracted to both decks is uh, I really like the one big turn play style. I love decks that can fall a little bit behind, but then you have a plan. And then once you execute your thing, which happens like very quickly, then the game turns around completely. So with Phoenix, that's a turn where you flip a thing in the ice or you bolt two creatures and get two Phoenixes back. And then all of a sudden a game that like, you know, looked horrible, you just are crushing in and living in being a, you know, plague wind. A, a lot of times, like a lot of times I think of living in as just the biggest shriek mod ever invented. Uh, and that's very good at turning games around. And I, I love the kind of dance of we both know the important thing that I'm trying to do. You're trying to stop me. I'm trying to create that window and then make it happen. And then once it happens, I can overwhelm pretty much whatever's going on. So just on a kind of overall feel level yeah i do agree that, that there is some some commonality there 
Awesome. Well, I'm glad we get to talk about this deck that you have such a history with and such uh, uh, winning long ago and winning extremely recently. So it's, it's, it's glad I'm glad that we get to focus on it uh, with you. And so let's first get into kind of like the core idea of this deck and how it executes the game plan. Because like on its face, I don't feel like Living End is, is an extremely complex deck Like on its face. Again, like you're cycling a bunch of big creatures. They have cheap cycling abilities. You get them into your graveyard over your first turns, and then you cast one of your Cascade spells that cascades into your free Living End. You know That wipes what your opponent's been foolishly playing to the battlefield, and it brings all these beefy creatures back out of your graveyard onto the battlefield, and you win in a swing or two. That's how you draw it up, right? And then this plan is backed up with both proactive and reactive disruption now in on your end, which is right now typically in the form of grief and force of negation in your main deck. And these, of course, much like we talked about two weeks ago with the uh, Rhinos dive down, is that these are doing their thing without costing you mana. And so they can clear out counter magic, they can clear out hate cards from your opponent's hand, like with grief, or they stop that important spell from resolving or protect your violent outburst with your force of negation. And then once you get into your sideboard games, you can then bring in additional disruptive elements that are trying to fizzle your opponent's plan, provide increased protection for your own, the usual stuff that sideboards do. And yeah, you know, if this sounds a little bit like Rhinos, you're not that wrong, but I think that these decks operate in in very different fundamental ways of creating advantage, and I think that's kind of the important thing to to realize that we'll be talking about in this episode. Something that we had tried to discuss in the Rhinos episode as well is what kind of deck is it? How do you define these different versions of Cascade? Um, and though Rhinos and, and Living End have certain similarities, they're so fundamentally different I'm curious, Chris, your opinion. Is this a combo deck? Is this an aggro deck? Is it just kind of like a new version of Dredge? Do you have a convenient little package that you like to put it in? I don't. I honestly almost... It's easy to describe it as a combo deck. uh, And that's probably a a relatively fair description of it. It is more on the like, you know, kind of low resource end of combo decks. You don't create resources by doing your combo the way that like a KCI deck does. You're comboing off, and then once you're comboing off, you can beat literally anything. Uh, Living End is a relatively low resource. What you gain from that is that a lot of your cards are disruption and stuff, but uh, your combo as it is really only does one thing, which is sweep sweep the board and then put bodies into play. It just so happens that that combo is good enough to beat most things going on in modern because, you know, Nobody's storming off right now. Nobody is doing uh, any sort of like Belcher stuff like the the real combos aren't there. So I think you can count this as a combo deck because nobody's doing a bigger combo than you. Nobody can like untap the turn after you living in and just straight up kill you unless they're like an amulet deck that already has amulet in play or something like that. Uh, But, you know, the way the format is constructed right now, this is the combo deck just because there aren't real combos is kind of how I see it. So let's look at to the construction of the deck um, and, and some of the core pieces that are static basically across all contemporary versions of Living End. The primary version that I think we're mostly going to focus on today has coalesced around what people often refer to as the four-color build. It's essentially a team version. It does have some black cards in it. Every once in a while, 
is playing no black tapping lands. In, in, in a way, it's really just like a four-color in-name-only deck. So similar to Rhinos, it's, it's built around red, green, blue mana to allow you to cast your two best Cascade spells in the format, Violent Outburst at instant speed or Shardless Agent at sorcery speed. Yeah, and, and, and in a lot of ways, you know, it's, it's kind of confusing to talk about how many colors it is. I actually kind of view it as a mono blue deck. You're just splashing the Cascaders into it. Uh, and really, you know, if all of your decks, uh, if all of your lands just made blue mana and then also cast your Cascaders, like that's all you really have to do. Uh, all of that is neither here nor there. Colors in modern don't matter. Spells don't cost mana. It's, it's whatever. It doesn't matter. Uh, the basic stock version of the deck, you know, you can just sort of rattle off the components of it. 19 lands, an 11 card cascade and living end package, uh, 20 cyclers, and then that leaves you 10 slots for interaction. Uh, generally, the stock for that is four force of negation, four grief, and then you got two slots to do what you want with. Right now, I'm doing two subtleties in those slots. Uh, you can do other things. Right now, I think subtle, you know, we can talk about this a little more. I do think subtlety is by far the best thing to be doing in those slots at the moment, but if the meta shifts, then you can consider doing other things. But that's really all the room that you have to play with in the stock version. The stock version is 58 cards in two flex slots. Yeah, well, it's even more than I thought. Like when I was looking at some lists, I, I kind of counted like 55 to 57, depending on like if you include lands as stock or not. Like I know some people are running like Sunken Ruins so that they can hard cast things if they really need to, like with Black Mana or something like that. But what I did want to mention is that there are griefless versions that do exist and grief is replaced by typically more main deck elementals like subtlety or more endurance and then like the kind of anemic architects of will is replaced by wind caller even and i think the mindset here is that like grief is good when you're expecting main deck hate or like combo or ramp decks but then otherwise subtlety and endurance potentially could be superior depending on that this is the argument that i've read um you know i'm not experienced enough to make any claims here but I wanted to acknowledge that these exist. And, and CCR, what do you think about the kind of the griefless versions right now? Like, is grief waning in power or is it still just so key to the strategy? So I want to be able to run a no grief version, right? I would love to be able to main deck some endurances, main deck more subtleties, uh, you know, run Brazen Borrower, one of my pet favorite cards. It gives you access to a lot of more flexible options. Wingcaller Aven, obviously much better than Architects of Will. And then having more cards that aren't bad for you to use for your elementals like that. That's nice. And then you get to have this sideboard kind of like flash threat game plan much more easily. It opens up a lot of options, but grief is doing a couple of things that I have not been able to justify getting away from. One of those things is turning your living ends into not dead draws. I can draw opening hands that have a living end in them. And instead of being like, well, nothing I can do about that. It's actually an actively good card in my hand because it's a black card that I can't punch by cycling it away and then drawing a grief. So it saves me from myself a little bit. And, you know, once you hit that grief, then it gets turned on, you grief them, then you living end, grief them again, and the game's over. Uh, and so that is really good. It's not so much the main deck hate that the griefs are there for. It's the main deck counterspell. Blue, blue, counter target spell. Uh, as long as Merktide is the second most played deck in the format, uh, then I think you just play Grief. 
because that's the card that gives you Murktide is a good matchup and grief is the card. I think, you know, endurance is good against them. Grief is bonkers against them. You get to see their hand. You get to know exactly what they're doing. You get to hold that grief because especially game one, they can't threaten you by, you know, you don't have to grief them early to keep a relic or an unlicensed hers off the table. You just get to hold on to your grief until you think, okay, maybe this is the turn I go for it. Let's find out. And then grief gives you that information. And it's just better than anything else against a deck that's holding up counter spells against you. Uh, no, that makes good sense. The It is a little less enticing now that more of the four color decks are cutting their counter spells, but uh, it still is just it makes the matchup against the card counter spell so much better. I just haven't been able to justify cutting it. Do you like playing sunken ruins to just like hedge against hands where you, you draw grief and there's nothing else you can do with it? I don't, I don't find that that comes up often enough that I want to do that. You maybe could have justified it before Kamigawa, but now any non-basic slot, that's not a dual land. I'm just running Odawaras or Bazejus on those slots. Yeah. All right, well, Chris went into kind of the, the the broad overview of the deck, but let's first talk about the Cascade engine, and really all we're really going to talk about here is the, the Living Ends. And this is the namesake card of the deck. Living Ends is kind of a funny spell, uh, because on its face it has no casting cost. It's just ostensibly suspend th- three for two black-black, and so that would be kind of a lot. You'd be casting this on, what, turn seven without mana ramp, you don't really want to be doing that. Uh, and what it reads is each player exiles all creature cards from their graveyard, then sacrifices all creatures they control, then puts all cards they exiled this way onto the battlefield, which effectively just means you and your opponent just exchange the creatures on your battlefield for the creatures in your graveyards. And of course, the goal here is that you're going to clear the battlefield from any pressure your opponent's been trying to present early on. Uh, for the stuff that you've been cycling into your graveyard, and then you have a really potent battlefield compared to what your opponents likely has at that point, and then you just flip the script, and then you close the door really quickly. And so that's really all you're trying to do. Much like, I mean, it's not. I mean, it's like not exactly all you're trying to do. That's ultimately how you're going to win the game, typically. But uh, a little bit different than Rhinos, I think, in that you know Rhinos puts eight to ten power on the board. Uh, Living End puts what would you say, Chris? Like twelve to eighteen power on the board, depending on when you're doing it. Yeah, I mean, if you're doing it turn three, if you as long as you had a Street Wraith, then there's a decent chance you're getting like 15 or so. If you don't have a Street Wraith, you're a little bit smaller. If you have to wait a little bit longer for your window, then, you know, you'll often be putting 20, 26, 30 something power into play. It, it scales as the game goes, uh, you know, your graveyard getting exiled and, and stuff it always changes these numbers and you're always doing that math in your head. But often, you know, especially given the power of Waker of Waves, a lot of times you put in like a seven, seven that shrinks their team and a five, five hex proof. And it's like, well, these are bigger than anything else in modern. And this is going to be good enough. Or some giant flying turtle with like ward two. And it's just like, yeah, good luck. Unfortunately, I don't believe, uh, you don't believe in the turtle. Turtles. I don't believe big turts is playable. Wow. Uh, wow. I love it. I wish, I wish I could justify it. It's just not what you want to be. It's not doing the streamlined thing, which is, yeah. you know, it's cool. I love that card. I, I can't justify it right now. Anti-turtle. Are you basically swapping those for the subtleties? 
Yeah, the those and, and I mean I can go into like why subtlety right oh, now. We will. Uh, we will whenever you want me to, but I, I figured <laughs> we'd reserve I'm that waiting. for. This is a subtlety stan account, so yeah. we'll be it's we'll, we'll go into too much death about. I I had four in my seventy five this weekend, and I they were like the best. You four have to now slots. Yeah, they're just so important. I mean, I, I will on. Of course, I am on record saying I don't really like subtlety, and I still think it's expensive for like an aether gust style effect, but it is just what gets you out of situations you cannot find yourself in, in a deck like a cascade deck. And so I I get it. So, I mean, so the thing about subtlety in this deck, I don't think subtlety is a great card. Generally. I agree. It is a good card because the other elementals are good cards and it's the only good answer to endurance that you have access to, but it's a phenomenal answer to endurance, which is half the decks in the format. It's their best card against you. So, any exchange that is I'm casting a living end now and they evoke an endurance. Okay. You lose that living end, but like the, the object is to win the living end. That's, that's the goal of the deck is to resolve the living end and be winning after it. If they evoke an endurance successfully, if you grief them and they invoke an endurance in response, they undo all of your work. Force of negation doesn't counter endurance, but if you cast a living end, they evoke an endurance and you have the subtlety, which maybe you knew about their endurance because of your grief. There's a lot of ways to set this up. Then you win that living end. You even get a 3-3 flyer on top of everything else for your troubles. Not always the most relevant, but sometimes. And that interaction, there's just no other way to make that go right for you. And there's so many endurances in the format. That card costs 100 ticks on on MTGO because it's so heavily played. Uh, You got to be ready for it because people will be bringing it to the party. It makes total sense. Uh, and then the other part of our, of course, our cascade package, of course, is uh, four violent operas and four shardless agent. You know what these cards do, almost certainly. Not going to need to repeat them there. Of course, we're going to talk more about considerations on when and how to use violent outburst because instant speed does give you more options. And we'll talk about that later, kind of like in the tips and tricks section of the show. All right, cyclers. This is kind of what the bulk of your creature suite is made up of. And these cards do mostly one thing, which is just be cheap to cycle and then have good enough stats to take over the game once they're back out of your graveyard, right? And there is some additional text on some of these that does make them even better. And we're going to talk about these as kind of we go through uh, all these creatures. And so starting off for Curator of Mysteries, 4-4 four, four Flyer Cycles for Blue, Hard Cast for 2 Blue Blue. I think this is just kind of like a great bread and butter card of this deck, right? Because like it's good in both the unfair living end thing and it's good enough when you have to play fair in a pinch. Like you get a 4-4 four, four flyer for four, not the worst thing. And then of course the static ability of scrying one whenever you cycle or discard another card can be pretty handy as well. It, it is kind of the only one of these guys that you can cast. And often that means that you can think about it and maybe... You know, if you're only going to get to cycle some of your creatures before you living end, that's the one you may want to consider holding on to because sometimes it's I'm going to cast living end on turn three and then I'm going to cast curator on turn four just to like get me over the hump and finish the game off. And that's that's a pretty common play pattern, actually. Curator of Mysteries also has a really important ability that I think everyone has to remember. It's easier to remember online because MTJ does it for you. But in person, um, don't miss these triggers. When Curator is on the board and you discard a card, which is cycling, cycling is a discard ability, it lets you scry one. So essentially giving you a little extra 
control over what you're drawing with each of your cyclers. Yeah, it's it's it can come in clutch, I imagine. How often is that coming in handy for you, Chris? Uh, so it's very important to remember the trigger because if your friends are watching you and you miss a trigger, that's the one thing that they'll notice and <laughs> tell you about after the match. That's yeah, you want friend equity. Yes. So remember your scry triggers. And yeah, obviously, if you have the opportunity to scry, that's scrying is one of the most powerful things in magic. So, so do that. All the cards in this deck do the same thing, though, so in some ways it's less important, but, you know, scry. A little anecdote I have playing against Living End, um, you know, a few weeks ago ahead of the energy, I was doing a lot of rigorous testing um, just for different sideboard and main deck slots because I was anticipating a lot of Living End at that tournament. And the specific question that I wanted to answer was, how hard can I mulligan for Leyline of the Void and still win against Living End? And I think in one game, like I mulligan to two or three, like it was just like, I'm just going to put all my chips on, on this choice and, and see what I learned from it. And I did the thing, completely shut off the graveyard. And then in turn four, they just cast a curative mysteries and I, I just couldn't answer it. And eventually ran away with the game. And it sort of made me respect this card on rate as like maybe one of your best, if not your best plan B in the face of like sticky disruption that you can't play around or beat. I, I'm sorry, I have multiple tangents to go off on on that in the middle of our deck breakdown. But love it. I, I think Perfect. these are this is what we this is what we brought you here for. These are really important points. Um, I what? Yeah, I'm just going to compliment my own points as <laughs> as being like gotta listen to this one. So the there's a huge difference between how this deck plays out when things go wrong than as opposed to like the Jund version from years ago, your creatures are not that castable in this deck. I did win my semifinals match this weekend by tapping seven and casting a striped river wonder and then tapping seven and casting a striped river wonder. Uh, that's really rare. These creatures are not as castable as the fives and sixes in the previous version. Curator of mysteries is kind of the, the one that breaks that rule and you can win some games like that. Uh, so, you know, think about that in the order that you're cycling your things and in what you're kind of looking for to beat, you know, a situation like that where your opponent is low resource but has locked you out of the game or locked you out of your living end game. The flip side of that, though, is that you are way, way harder to lock out than previous versions of the deck and way harder to lock out than most people realize. I just I have a lot of opponents who play against me and they play a hate piece and, they, you know, you can tell sometimes by the way somebody's casting a card that they're casting it kind of expecting you to slump your shoulders as it resolves. <laughs> the way that this deck works, uh, force and negation and grief stop a lot of stuff. Your lands stop a lot of stuff. Somebody puts a ley line in against me and just isn't really doing anything. I can just, you know, take my time cycle to make land drops, Odawara the ley line, and then eventually kill them. Like three, you know, depending on how many slots you've dedicated to this, like three of your lands clear ley lines out of play. And you have all of the cycling to kind of go find your stuff. Uh, you're very resilient to hate. And so what that means for playing against Living End is you can't go all in on trying to find your hate cards. Your deck needs to be doing something too, uh, or else they'll, they'll stop you. And I saw this in both of my top eight matches against Amulets. That's a matchup where they're pretty far behind because the thing you're doing beats the thing that that they're doing. And they had to mulligan heavily to hate. They found their hate, but then their deck wasn't doing their deck's thing. And so I just was able to play magic for a while, do some 
relatively small stuff around their hate, and that was enough to beat them because their deck wasn't playing at the level of a modern deck. Yeah, you're getting back to one of, I think, maybe one of our most repeated adages, which is disruption without a clock is not really true disruption. So you have to be presenting your own game plan for sure. All right, I love the diversion, but we have so much more strategy to talk about later. I'm just going to run through these. Uh, Stripe Winter River Winder, it's a four of. That's the one that Chris just said. You know, you can cast for six in a blue if you get really long games. Uh, it's pretty much, I think, one of your first cycling considerations, if not the first, because, you know, it's, uh, it's just a single blue. And when it comes back out, it's a five, five. So why not? Architects of Will. It's a 3-3 that cycles for blue or black, and you're going to be doing it with blue mana in this deck. And it's much harder to cast due to the two blue-black cost. But Architects of Will can importantly be pitched to Grief, it can pitch to Force of Negation, it can pitch to Subtlety. And so that makes it one of the last cards you want to be cycling away because it has this tangential ability, or actually maybe more of a, a primary ability, just to be able to pitch to your important pitch spells. And it does have a nice ETB if you get it back from a living end or somehow do hard cast it, where you look at the top three cards of a target player's library, put them back in any order. You're typically going to do this to your opponent to stop them from you know, drawing a hate piece or a sweeper or stopping you in some way, shape, or form. But I think there can be considerations for doing it to yourself as well. Uh, and I think that this is one of the cards I believe that you shave more frequently because they're just not particularly beefy. And if you're shaving grief for any reason, that you need a lot fewer black pips. Um, what's your thoughts on Architects of Will and how you typically bring it in and out of your deck, Chris? Yeah, it's a necessary evil. You're only running it because of grief. Although the turns where you living end and you bring back a grief and an Architects and you get to make sure they don't have anything good in their hand and make sure they're not drawing anything for at least a turn. You know, that's a nice little one-two punch. It is generally the cycler that you shave, even if you're not taking out griefs, because it's just the worst cycler and you need to take something out sometimes. Uh, so that is something that happens. But, you know, don't cut too many if you still have your griefs in and it just is part of the deck. It, it's you got to play it. We don't have a better thing. That It's what we're doing. Uh, for Street Wraith, this is our 3-4 that ostensibly costs 3 black-black, but you can cycle it away for 2 life. Uh, what's This is an interesting card because it lets you surprise your opponent with like additional creatures off of a living end. Uh, you can quickly fill your yard back up without paying mana. Uh, it can be pitched to grief. Swamp Walk is randomly handy, but black's not exactly popular in modern right now. So This, this is the card that... I find if I already have a Cascade spell in my hand that I'm actually holding for as long as possible because even though putting into your graveyard and drawing a card is sometimes like so helpful and important to find your payoff, if I already have the payoff in hand, like I would almost rather dig for that grief and use the Street Wraith that way. I, I wonder if you have any similar heuristics or if you, you even maybe disagree with that pattern. Yeah, because Chris, I, I do feel like there's a lot of small edges that can be gained with Street Wraith, and I am not smart enough to have to have learned these. So give us give us the download here. I think that is one of the more difficult decision points in the deck is when to cycle your Street Wraith. It doesn't cost mana, so you don't have an opportunity where you're like, well, I'm wasting a mana here if I don't do it. It's it's not always intuitive. I have kind of like had to correct each way multiple times over the the lifetime of this deck. Yes, my my gut, my what my thing that I want to do is just hold it for as long as possible and, you know, use it with a living end on the stack 
you know, if I know now, okay, I'm not getting hit by endurance, I can put this three, four into play, or I got hit by endurance, but fortunately I have these two street race. So I'm still getting two, three, four. So yeah, great use of the card, but there's a fair number of spots where you are supposed to be cycling it more actively, uh, depending on how full your graveyard is getting. Like you don't want to be wasting a bunch of mana in the early turns, not cycling you, you it's worth cycling it often to find a cycler to spend mana on. Uh, especially like if you don't have anything to cycle on turn two, except for the street wraith, just do it. And hopefully you can find something to spend your mana on. Cause having a threatening graveyard is a very important part of this deck being real. Uh, also cycling it to try to put together, you know, say I have a living end in my hand and no grief cycling it to try to put together an early grief is an important thing to do and something that you should be aiming to do in the matchups in the situations where having the grief on an early turn matters you know if i'm like playing against amulet and i have a chance to maybe grief turn one probably gonna spend whatever resources i can to try to find that grief because if i can take their turn one amulet then their deck is much less scary so spending your street race in order to put that free combo together casting grief is a a combo in this deck because it's not the easiest thing in the world that that can be something that you want to look for a little more actively awesome then we also have waker of waves as a three or four of in most decks i've seen three be slightly more common than four but i think it's kind of season to taste uh waker's a seven seven Casting cost of five blue, blue static text that gives your opponent's creatures negative one, negative zero. And this is the only card that I believe that we play that has a cycling ability, actually a discard ability for one in the blue. And let's you look at the top two cards of your library, you draw one and put the other in your graveyard. So effectively, it's like I get to put two cards in my graveyard, hopefully another creature of some kind. Then you also get to sort of fix your draw if you need uh, some card or the other. And sideboard guides I've seen seem split on whether or not Waker is like just broadly useful because of the card selection and double filling potential, or if it's like not useful enough to keep in in games where you're sort of fearing hate. And I was curious on uh, your take there or your experiences as well, Stan. Well, what what I would piggyback uh, before we ask Chris to tell us what's right or wrong is that I'd never really referred to sideboard guides when I was learning this deck, and I just kind of made the personal decision that if I'm shaving cyclers and I want to keep all my griefs and want to have black sources that I'm occasionally taking out these just because it costs more mana to cycle and I want to in some cases post board try to be as quick and aggressive as possible especially if I'm on the play where having as many one mana cyclers to just like burn through my deck find the payoff and then like slam is maybe the the best line but am I doing it wrong? I understand that temptation. I think I'm higher on Waker than a lot of people are. I'm a four Waker of Waves guy. I generally am not shaving on them during sideboarding. You know, if I take out an Architects or two or something like that, I I I kind of fall into the camp of Waker of Waves is artificially inflating my cycler density because it's two cycles and one cards in, in, in a lot of ways. Also, it is the biggest body in one card of cycling that you can get, and it also has other relevant text. Like, I have Living Ended just to put two Waker of Waves in against Murktide, and there's no way they can ever beat that. 
Uh, no matter what their board is, they can't. Their creatures with minus two, minus zero oh, don't do anything. Seven toughness on the Waker of Waves means it doesn't die, and that's something that I don't think people are rating properly. Is just how monstrous this card is when you do get it into play, and it does make a difference in the power of your living ends, uh, which is very important when they're disrupting you, which is often going to cause your living ends to be not for four plus creatures. And when it's for two creatures, if one of those creatures is a waker of waves, you're still beating most modern decks. Let's talk about this now. I mean, even though we're way definitely cart before horse type thing here, but it's because CCR is a bad influence on us and and we're just like slowly becoming. Yeah. It's just, we're just shooting from the hip. That's, that's the only way to podcast in, in CCR land. What this makes you think is what's your general mindset on how you approach post sideboard games. Are you saying I'm planning on playing a quote unquote fair game, or you're saying I'm going to work around your hate and play a super long game. Well, or I know I'm going to eventually disrupt the hate that you're bringing out and I will fill the graveyard again with a couple cool creatures and then bring them back. uh, And then that'll be enough to win. Yeah. So the creatures in this deck just aren't castable in a way that allows you to kind of pivot to a fair plant. Sometimes you draw two curators and they've drawn so many hate cards that you're just like, all right, well, let's see if this works. Generally, that doesn't happen. You have to beat their hate cards. And sometimes that is going to require you to do smaller living ends uh, earlier than you want to. Uh, Sometimes it's going to require you to cover the living ends with counter magic and griefs. But you are you have to living end to win even post board. What about, I mean, so I'm tempted to look at the elementals, the pitch elementals that are in the sideboard or sometimes the main deck and say, is that not enough to like stock up and like play a more fair game? If you, you know, if you decide that that is a way that you want to go and you bring in like all of the subtleties and all of the endurances, maybe some brazen borrowers if you're still playing those or something like that. Yeah, I think you need to go up to somewhere around like nine to ten slots of those like flash creatures uh, into your deck before you can be like, OK, yes, I can kill my opponent this way. Um, I don't think that's an ineffective strategy, but I have had a lot of success just slamming my face into their hate cards with my anti hate cards. And I think this deck is quite good at that. And until it stops working, I'm going to keep doing it. Yeah, I mean, it's proving itself working just fine. And then we can talk more about post-sideboard later on. Uh, I do want to talk about Chris's least favorite card in Magic. That's the Colossal Sky Turtle. It's not a mainstay in Living End yet, but I feel like it's often in there as a one-of, sometimes a two-of. It's a 6-5 flyer with Ward 2. The natural casting cost is 4 green, green, blue. And you can channel it in two different ways, which is 2 and a green to discard it, return target card from your graveyard to your hand, uh, or is it any graveyard to hand? Although I don't know why you'd want to do that for your opponent necessarily. And then one in the blue, which is the mode you're going to use probably 95% of the time, if not 100, you discard it to return target creature to its owner's hand. You can bounce opponent's creatures, bounce your own for value. You can bounce a street wraith. I hear is sometimes a move people want to do. I mean, I'm not, I, I can't tell why you do that. Maybe just because you want to cycle it again. I don't know. You want to save up for a future living end. Maybe you drew grief. Yeah. Oh yeah. Good point. So this is narrower than Brazen Borrower. Uh, It can only bounce creatures, but it's more on game plan because it's a huge flying threat that with Ward 2. You can get you out of like a Lavinia or a Dranath Magistrate or like a Meddling Mage. Not all of these are super common besides maybe Lavinia right now. Sometimes Dranath and like a Mono White Hammer build or something like that. 
I, I think a pro to this card, and I'm sure Chris will have reasons why he still doesn't think it's that great, is Sky Turtle has green and blue pips in the casting cost. So like if you're running a large number of endurance and you're 75, that you don't have a lot of green cards to pitch in your main deck besides what I mean, you really only have uh Charlotte's agent, right? And as a kind of and violent outburst. Your cascaders are your, oh, yes, your pitch both cards. Of them. Yeah. And you don't and that's like sometimes you don't really want to do that. Maybe you have to to get your endurance down. But yeah, speak to us about Colossal Sky Turtle. Yeah, so I I do agree. There's a lot to like about it. There's a lot that drew me to it and made me want to try it. Uh, being blue and green means it pitches to force both forces and to both of your elementals that are not grief. Uh, you although This is actually a deck that hardcasts Endurance significantly more than it uh, evokes it when you are running Endurance. Having the option is always good. Being able to kind of rebuy disruption pieces is sometimes helpful and certainly bouncing creatures there are some hate creatures at this moment though i have found it to just not be the thing that you want in those you know you only have so many kind of like terminal slots in your deck uh anything that's not a cycler is a terminal draw turtle can buy back another cycler to be a very expensive cycle but that's generally not the best use of your time so it it feels more like a terminal draw to me and that is kind of an expensive slot to have in the deck and you have to make sure that it's doing what you want to do bouncing a creature is the thing that you want to do some of the time you know and to me ultimately that didn't feel like enough especially because you have to spend mana on that effect so I don't want it in my main deck right now because in a game one, game one's your advantage against everyone. 100% of the format uh, of, of decks you can expect to see, you're ahead in game one. So I want to spend all of my mana cycling and I'm going to mulligan very aggressively to make sure that I have the cyclers to spend my mana turns one to uh, turns one and two uh, on cycling. And I don't want to be spending mana on my uh, pieces of interaction. That's why I'm running 10 pieces of free interaction in my main deck, uh, because that's just how the game ones play out. I, you know, you could think about it as a sideboard card, but I'm generally interested in more focused pieces of uh, sideboard technology. This is a good argument. We'd mentioned the pitch elementals. Let's talk about them for a minute. We have the four grief. I think this is probably if not the only deck, but like the deck that's still really carrying their grief torch in the format. Racto scam in this, basically. Yeah, yeah. 2BB for a 3-2 with Menace evoked by exiling a black card from your hand. When, when grief ETBs, you can look at your opponent's hand, choose a non-land card, and discard that. I gotta tell you, countless times I've made the mistake where I'm about to living end, I grief for, you know, interaction just to make sure the coast is clear, and it's like, and then I'll put Primeval Titan because that's a scary card. And it's just like, oh, no, oh, no <laughs> I've made a like huge this. mistake. Yeah. <laughs> See, and the thing is, though, you get that on the back half when you living end. And that's one of the places that, you know, the, the evoke clears the way for the living end. And then it comes back and makes sure that there's no way that they can come back from the living end. It's uh, to me, it is the heart and soul of like why this deck feels good into decks that like should match up well against it because of their counter magic. Uh, and it is in the current iteration of modern difficult for me to justify being a different version. Yeah. And, and, you know, to that point, it's become a really huge component of the overall living and strategy, 
both on the turns where you want to make your big play, but even in early turns, if your opponent may be relying on two or three mana hate, for example, something like Teferi, um, maybe if you're on the play and you're worried that they may have Chalice, um, maybe you're against a white deck that's playing Rest in Peace. Anything is possible, and grief <laughs> can can help answer all of those. I think we just got some good stuff in the tips and tricks section, too, about grief as well. Yeah, I do want to talk about subtlety a little bit. Chris, clearly you're a huge fan of it. I am as well. I've been playing main deck in Rhinos, though some of the reasons that you've cited for playing subtlety are different than the reasons that I've been drawn to it, and, and granted, very different decks, different priorities. Friendly reminder to our listeners, subtlety is the blue elemental, cost two, blue, blue. You can pitch a blue card to cheat into play, and it's a 3-3 three, three flyer, and when it ETBs, you can Aether Gust, a non-land permanent? No, it's Creature, Planeswalker. Creature or Planeswalker. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on the stack only. On the stack, yes. Exactly. Um, Which is like my, uh, I wish it was, man, I wish it was on the battlefield, but that would be too good. It would be a gnarly card, I think. <laughs> yes. So you mentioned it, especially with regard to counterplay against other Evoke Elementals. You know, you cited Endurance in particular. I also love pitching a subtlety against my opponent's griefs because even though we're both like two for oneing ourselves sometimes just sending the grief back to your opponent's top of library if, if that's where they put it um they just potentially end up with a dead draw if they can't pitch something else to it or they're forced to two for one themselves again and in the cascade deck that i like to play i'm usually thinking about like subtletying to fairy time reveler or or maybe an Omnath, or just like holding it as long as possible and try to like tag um, a big Merktide region. How relevant are some of those applications in the living end games? Uh, a lot of them are less relevant. So you don't, you know, you don't care about the card Merktide region. They generally, the turn they cast Merktide regent is the turn that they've opened themselves up to getting living ended, living ended, and so the eight eight doesn't matter. Uh, most of the good Merktide players that I've played against just kind of never put Merktide on the stack. It just doesn't happen because it it's too much of a liability to spend two mana at that point in the game. So things like that, interactions like that, subtlety is not doing the same thing in Living End because the Cascade spell comes with a Plague Wind attached. And so that is like kind of the fundamental difference between cascading into living end and cascading into crashing footfalls is plague winding them. So the creatures that they put on the stack, unless they are creatures that are stopping you from living ending, they don't matter. And the mana they spend on them is more of a liability than anything else. So these kind of like fair uses of subtlety just are not part of your game plan most of the time with living end. And what you are subtletying is elementals. And I'm generally taking my subtleties out as my trims in any matchup where all, almost any matchup where they're not bringing, not going to have endurance. And if they are going to have endurance, then I go up to four. And it's almost as simple as that, honestly. Do you fear cards or plan to use it against things like Omnath or like Planeswalkers, like Teferi 3 or anything like that? Or is it really just kind of anti-elemental tech? Yeah, I mean, helpfully, the main Teferi deck in the format also is going to go up to like three endurances. So you just yeah, kind of get to have it do double duty in there. I think the only other Teferi deck that I've generally played against is the the white version, the Jeskai version of the Breach deck. And... Because you're not subtletying anything else, I can't 
I haven't been able to justify having subtlety in for just Teferi in that matchup. Yeah. So not like an Azorius control matchup. You're not bringing that in or something. So, and actually I'm not confident in my like Azorius control plan because I haven't seen very much of it. Uh, you may, you, you probably can justify it because it has the keyword flash on it and blue white has, you know, wandering emperor and Teferi and other Teferi. And that's like, enough things that this is probably a useful tool for you to have access to all right y- you must be spending it on teferi time raveler just because like getting that off the board is so tricky for a deck like this if you don't have force of negation to take it off the stack and like that's just such an effective hate piece against the combo yes the problem there though is that when they teferi and you subtlety it now you have your back against the wall. You have one turn to cascade before they Teferi you. If you are setting your deck up with subtleties for that interaction, you're telling yourself part of my game plan is going to be to end up in this spot with my back against the wall. That's not what you want to do with this deck. You want to leverage the threat of Living End to make your opponent be making suboptimal plays to make them time their stuff in ways that they don't want to be timing their stuff. And so you've kind of allowed your opponent to switch things around by constructing your deck in that way. I am much more comfortable if I'm just going, okay, they have Teferi, they don't have Endurances. My Teferi answers are four griefs, four forced negations, this one or two mystical disputes, and actual answers to Teferi. And, you know, my two Odawaras as well, which has been a huge boon to the archetype. Yeah, I mean, same as Rhinos, for sure. Like, those anti-counterable lands with spells seems okay. Yeah. And uh, speaking of lands, the mana base is fairly stock. It seems like, you know, it's a mix of teamer fast lands, shocks, fetches, a few basics. And, like, the primary options seem like the number of Odawaras you're going to run, or if you're going to run the Sunken Ruins, uh, which is the Demir Filter land, or if you're going to main deck of Oseju, um, or more, I suppose, if you're uh, expecting more hate than usual. What's uh, what's your split of the channel lands, Chris? It's changed almost every tournament that I've played. Um, you know, I, I went up to two Odawaras a while ago because I always was happy to draw one. Uh, you know, blue mana cycle is your stuff. And having one is a great piece of protection. Like, okay, yeah, if they resolve a Teferi, then I I have a way of figuring this out. It also just, it bounces literally anything that stops you from cascading. So it is the good one. Uh, This weekend, I put in a Buzeju for the basic forest because I don't respect Blood Moon uh, as a card in Modern. And I just thought, "Eh, one more naturalize effect than I only... Run, you know, you can run like four to five naturalized effects in your sideboard. If I main decked a Bozeju, then I felt like I could justify to myself running only four naturalized effects in my sideboard. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of up to you. I did get Blood Mooned one game, but uh, you know, wasn't doing a good job, of, wouldn't have been doing a good job of fetching around it anyways. So, whatever, it, it, it's kind of up to you what you expect. Yeah, earlier on you were talking about cards that like people love to like slam down and then see their opponent's shoulders slumping. That I was just imagining Stan just being like, "Are your shoulders slumping? Are they slumping? <laughs> That's a blood moon on the stack. What are you going to do about it?" <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'll probably go to the next game and then just like, n- it'll, it's fine. Like, <laughs> I'll, I'll 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 go faster than you. <laughs> yeah, or I'll kill it with one of the lands in my hand that still has its ability. 
Yeah. All right. Let's uh, let's run through these sideboard options. I don't want to talk too much about these because I think we can talk more about those in kind of the matchups and sideboarding section. Uh, we've got Brazen Borrower for bouncing hate pieces, maybe playing a fair game. Endurance is kind of your anti-graveyard. Uh, can also be cast uh, more fairly as well. Flash Threat, Subtlety. You know, again, we just talked about that. Sometimes you want more for elementals, planeswalkers, things like that. We've got sometimes Leyline of Sanctity, which I imagine is if we are existing in like a heavy Thoughtseize, heavy grief, heavy meta. Like if you're seeing Shadow, which has been making a little bit of a comeback, continue to pick up. If you're seeing, you know, Rakdos Scam or like Rakdos Midrange making a comeback or you know it's popular in your meta, maybe you're bringing in Leyline. What are your thoughts on Leyline of Sanctity right now? Chris. Uh, I was running three. I I struggle with how much hand disruption is enough to make me want to bring it in. I have kind of been leaning towards, and this is, you know, I, I think this is the Sodek rule. I, I have been uh, paying attention to his writings about the deck. Uh, is if they've got hand disruption and endurance, then you bring in Leyline because that stops. Oh yeah, like, targetable. Probably both of the things that they're doing to try to stop you, and so that's very powerful there. The problem is cycling into Leyline. There's nothing you can do with that Leyline you put <laughs> yeah. in your hand, and so it has to be good in the matchup for you to justify it. I'm more excited to bring it in against Burn than anything else. Uh, I will bring it in against, you know, if I play against like Rakdos Scam, then I'm going to bring in Leyline of Sanctity. If I'm playing against Death Shadow, I don't know if I can justify it mm. because just stopping Thought Seize and two Inquisitions or whatever is not. Yeah. I don't know if that's, I'd rather just let them Thought Seize me. Yeah, like they have four of those. You have eight Cascaders. Who's yeah. going to come on top of this? Yeah. All right, we got Force of Vigor, uh, you know, anti-artifact strategies, anti-enchantment strategies. If you see a lot of artifact or enchantment hate, what's your thought on Force of Vigor kind of like game two? When you're like, this is a deck where I think they're going to have artifact hate or like maybe Blood Moon me. Like, are you planning in advance for using that? And in this scenario, I think we're like, especially curious if we're not playing against Hammer, right? Where it's just like an obvious include, but maybe where you're trying to like anticipate what your opponent may be capable of yeah i I think that's a exactly the place that i was going there i when i'm just trying to beat so say murktide you know they bring in a couple of unlicensed hearses and maybe and some relic you know a relic or two um i'm bringing in my foundation breakers i'm not bringing in my force of vigors because it's just so it costs four mana if you're not uh if you're not paying the free cost it's unlikely to have two targets. It's just not the most effective anti-hate card in that way. Where it really shines, though, is, you know, Hammer. The It's generally, if they have Urza Saga in their deck, then you bring in Force of Vigor because you're going to find multiple targets for it and it's often going to beat them on its own. And that's pretty much what it's for, is if they've got Urza Saga in their deck, sometimes you draw it and they die to it. <laughs> I'd love to tag a saga and a dryad or like a saga and an amulet. And then you're just like that. That's when I expect my opponent to slump their shoulders. It's just like, <laughs> yes, it's like a double time walk, even just a, a saga. And they spent three mana making a construct and then you get them both. And th- that's just too much tempo to a overcome. CCR t- uh, token construct. Yes. Oh, yeah. Or uh, we have Lee token constructs now, too. Ooh, so Lee yes. tokens. They're very cute. I believe it. As an aside, uh, for those of y'all who are not aware of what we are talking about, we got uh, tokens made a a long time ago. 
this was when Dominaria came out. We got construct tokens made to go with Karn because we were like, this card's good. Well, why don't we have this be the first <laughs> of our tokens? And we didn't do a good job of, we made food tokens at some point too, which have been useful. But the uh, construct tokens got an incredible amount of mileage as first Urza was printed <laughs> and then Urza Saga was printed. So we oh, were just yeah. like, oh, that's a good pick. Keep, keep going with these construct tokens. Yeah, I feel like the longest running one of our three has been the Elemental Dave. <laughs> so there's like there's the, the 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 spirit token Shane that only gets made off of what that that the land that makes a spirit. I don't so, think it's so Kenzen. No, the um, no, it's 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 the one that was played in in like Azoria spirits or like Bant spirits, like very briefly. It's like out of Innistrad, I think. Oh, uh, Moon the Haunt. Yes, the Haunt. Yes, I'm 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 the very underutilized token. Those are great tokens. Uh, are you still giving them away for patrons? Should is this a patron benefit that people should come over to you? Patreon.com/slash what? MTG Grindcast. Yeah, or if you see me somewhere, I'll probably have some, and I, I'm happy to you know hand them out to an Carry opponent or whatever. Just in case we, we we keep a couple with us. <laughs> uh, you mentioned Foundation Breaker. That's the anti-artifact evoke creature. Uh, comes back after a living end, of course. Mystical Dispute, uh, Counterspell against blue heavy decks. Would you bring this in against combo? We're just like, I just need a Counterspell in a pinch, and I'm just going to hold this up on turn three type thing. So I'm actually pretty low on Mystical Dispute. I only had one in my sideboard this weekend, and that felt like the right number. Mm. Because generally in matchups where you're bringing it in, you don't have slots to shave for it because any matchup where mystical dispute is good, force of negation is good, and grief is good. Mm. So what are we cutting at that point? Uh, and I have found that bringing in too many mystical disputes is a great way to end up with a hand that's like force of negation, force of negation, mystical dispute, and that's not getting you anywhere. So in rhinos again, it's very common to shave your forces against Merktide. Because the two for one that you're most often using um, or doing to cast a force is less valuable than just like trying to line up a good mystical dispute. Mm -hmm. Is the heuristic different in Living End? I think it's a fundamentally different matchup, right? Um, so your rhinos against Living uh, rhinos against Merktide, your mid range deck against uh, a Delver mid range deck, right? Um, you resolving a Crashing Footfalls isn't the most important, highest leverage moment in the game. Making two four fours is great, but that's not what it's all about. You're not going to, that doesn't end the game. Uh, in Living End, your whole point, the entire thing you need to do against Merktide is resolve one decent Living End. And then their removal doesn't kill your creatures. Your creatures are way bigger than theirs and you beat them with it. So you're willing to throw away cards in order to just get this super high leverage turn where infinite spells go on the stack. And then at the end of it all, you know, you've cast like uh, you've griefed them on your turn and then you've passed the turn, you've violent outbursted and then you force of negation their counter spell. And then at the end of all of that, you have three creatures in play and they have a Raghavan and then and you grief them again and take their expressive iteration. So it's so all you're doing is resolving that living end. And so force of negation is really powerful in that matchup. And then the flip side of this is true too. Rhinos against Merktide, if you get a chance to mystical dispute their ledger shredder, that's a fantastic exchange for you. With Living End, you don't care. Ledger shredder isn't, is, it, it, they cost them two mana and they can only cast it on the play. 
and mystical disputing it when they did that, like actually didn't really do anything for you. And I think dispute is at its best when one of your useful applications of it is to stop their assertive game plan. And that just doesn't really come up for living end. It's not as important. Yeah. No, that's good insight for sure. Some other weird fringe cards, dead gone. Sometimes people run this in the side. Are you a dead gone truther here? Uh, I had one copy. It kills Lavinia. It uh, yes. is a card that you can hold up and then hammer ha- really struggles to kill you through it. Uh, and it just like has a decent number of applications that, you know, I bring in the copy when I'm on the draw against Merktide because the way they beat you is turn one Raghavan. So it has some applications. It's not a great card, but it it's the only card that does the thing that it does. Yeah, for sure. Okay, this is this is the big one for me. The additional copy of Living End. I frequently ran into issues testing this deck where I was like drawing into my Living Ends or just something happened where like one got countered or... You know, I pitched one to a grief early on and I drew into two more or like I had to really play super safe mm-hmm. because I had one in hand, one in deck, one in exile. And if I blew the one in my deck, then I was out of luck. And so I was kind of like, why don't we play four here? And I can see the application of the additional one, maybe like against counterspell decks or things like that. But what are your thoughts on why people would do this? And are you doing this? Um, so I ran the fourth living end in my sideboard this weekend. I bring it in against Merktide and any other just like heavy counterspell deck. Anytime that I feel like I'm just going to have to put multiple living ends on the stack, uh, and some of them are not going to resolve then. Yeah. I, I think that fourth copy is actually quite good. I had not done it before. I, the, the last modern RCQ I played before this weekend, the night before I thought, I'm convinced I should probably run the fourth one in my sideboard. And then I couldn't find one in time and I lost two matches because I couldn't sideboard in the fourth living end. So, you know, that's not an actual justification for doing it, but it was psychologically enough that I found one for this weekend and put it in. And I don't think it actually made a difference, but it did. You know, there were a couple post board games where I no longer had to fear every draw step because I was out of living ends except for one. I, I had two left in my deck, so I could draw the the second to last living end and it, things would be okay. I like having the fourth one in the sideboard. It just like made me feel safer. And I do have four Russians, so I, I better put them to good use. Of course. So this is, this is a section I've been waiting for, and I'm sure the listeners have. It's like, yeah, we know these cards, Shane. We, we, all, we all know what these cards do. Let's talk about some more strategy. That's, that's why, why, we that's why the, I yeah, took we all the, the tangents. Yeah. yeah, the tangents and diversions are what people are here for. So the first thing that I think seems basic, but sometimes is not, is when to cycle. And, you know, cycling main phase does certain things that are beneficial. Uh, saving your cycle to, the, like, you know, your opponent's end step. It just seems like the natural kind of, like, inclination because we always want to do stuff on our opponent's end step. But, like, what are you thinking about when you're cycling stan either when you were playing your test matches or or chris he's probably has one or two more than you so the only thing that i am trying to do early at sorcery speed is to grief and so fundamentally you you should be asking yourself what am i looking for am i looking to grief am i looking for a better land drop this turn if if my 
you know, if I have a botanical sanctum in play on turn two and I have an Odawara in hand as my second land, I'm almost certainly cycling a card to try to make a better land drop on my turn two. Cause, you know, Odawara just has so many more uses. And boy, it would be shame if I put that Odawara into play and then cycled into three more lands. So you are thinking about what am I doing on sorcery speed on my turn? And is cycling going to change that in any way? Is it going to let me hit the grief? Is it going to let me hit a better land? If the answer to those things is both no, then there's really no reason not to wait. The benefit of waiting on turns one and two is not necessarily huge. Uh, Post board, it can let you decide whether or not you want to cycle after seeing if they're playing a relic or an unlicensed hearse that is going to start eating cards and then you get to make your decisions a little bit better against opponents that are less experienced against the deck you can also get a little bit of leverage by not kind of showing them what's going on i had a a hammer opponent who on their turn uh their turn three i believe uh i knew they had a mana leak in hand So I wouldn't be able to go for it on my turn if they left mana up, but they looked and they said, okay, well, you don't have anything in your graveyard, so I'm going to go ahead and cast the Stoneforge Mystic here, tapping themselves out of their mana leak. And then I went end of turn, uh, cycle two stripe, wherever winders, untap, slam a shardless agent, kill your uh, Stoneforge Mystic, get my five fives into play. And if I had cycled main phase, then I don't think my opponent would have done that. I don't think that that's as relevant against players who have more experience against the deck. But if you don't have a reason, a a thing that would change what you're doing on your turn, uh, like cards you could draw that would make you do something different, then you might as well wait. Uh, It gets extremely relevant once you hit three lands. The cost of cycling below three mana is enormous even if you don't have Violent Outburst in your hand because the threat of Violent Outburst is so terrifying to your opponent that representing it can make them do contortions and bend over backwards. Nobody's animating an Ink Moth Nexus when you have three mana up. You know, there's just too many things that can go wrong for them if you have the Outburst. So consider that when you're considering spending mana on your turn. Going below three when you had three is a much larger cost than like you know, tapping your botanical sanctum main phase turn one of the game. That's interesting. So just like in a vacuum to clarify, when we talk about waiting to cycle. Mm-hmm. I mean, waiting until their end step. Uh, okay. You want to spend your yes. mana. If you got yes. cyclers, you're cycling. Generally, if you have not a large amount of power in the graveyard, uh, specific things have to happen to make you like actually just like skip spending mana on cycling for a whole turn cycle, like a relic in play or playing around specific things. So let's talk about uh, using grief, just in case there's anything we missed when we touched on it previously. Um, You know, the best practices in my experience, at least be careful about taking creatures because they will come back when you do your thing. Um, And in general, just be thoughtful about what you're trying to snag. If you're griefing on turn one, um, especially if you're on the play, it's usually because you want to take out something like a chalice or a relic or maybe even an endurance, the type of hate that someone can surprise you with early in the game or for no mana. If you're holding a grief, that could be because you're trying to tag counterspell or other types of stack-based disruption. And then if you're 
casting a grief ahead of your opponent's turn three, you might be looking for Blood Moon, Teferi, or even their uh, potential hard cast endurance. Any other like prime suspects or really important targets that you're thinking about when you're uh, deploying a grief that you know might get in the way of your combo and and, and your deck actually getting to a winning position? No, I think you have pretty much summed it up. Each turn, if you're going to cast a grief, be able to articulate the reason to yourself why you're casting the grief. Are they playing cheap sorcery speed graveyard hate cards? Game one, they are not. But if you're playing against like Amulet, they are playing Amulet of Vigor. So it is, you know, pretty easy to... I, I think you should just grief your amulet amulet opponent turn one if you're on the play. Get that amulet out of their hand. If they have it, then their deck is a lot worse. If they have powerful, assertive things that they can do to you. Against Murktide, if I have it in my opening hand, I'm probably casting it on turn one, even though I'm generally in favor of sandbagging grief because until the turn that you're cascading. But if I know my opponents on Murktide, even game one, I'm happy to grief turn one because taking a Raghavan there is mm. going to reduce their ability. To, I mean, Raghavan is the main way that they beat you in a game one. I mean, that's exactly right. But what you said is just think about the reason that you are griefing. And if they have a card they could cast on their turn, that would actually be good against you, whether it's a hate piece or an active part of their plan that will constrict the length of the game and put you under pressure, then it is worth griefing. Once you get past that point, though, once you get to like turn three or so and they've had the opportunities to cast those cards and they haven't, then if you draw a grief or you draw the black card for your grief, you need a really high bar to justify griefing on any turn other than the one that you're planning on going for a living end. You're not going to catch a relic on turn three because they're just going to cast it whenever they draw it. So the likelihood that it does anything for you lowers and casting grief the turn before you cascade and then they top deck the counterspell is, you know, there was no reason to let that happen. Yeah, I, I kind of wanted to get back to the counterspell concept is like, does it make more sense to grief into a counterspell and then they are forced to potentially let you take whatever's in their hand or counterspell the grief and then you're kind of saying well they just counterspelled this grief does that mean they have another one let's say it's just going to later in the game and like there's they're holding up four mana like are you trying to proactively take it or only when you're saying i'm going to grief because i can go off on this turn well, so that's why I want to grief on the turn that I'm going off, right? Because I want to get the advantage that them paying the mana for the counterspell for the grief is going to give me. So if I'm griefing them just to kind of see what's going on, but I don't actually have a cascader, then I think you're getting a, a lot less out of it. Because if their hand is just like cards and a counterspell, then they're just going to go... Okay, well, I'm going to counter this so that you don't get the peak, and I'm not. I wasn't going to yeah. use the mana on anything else this turn, anyways. So if you instead grief on your cascade turn, and then you know they have the counter spell for it, but now they're tapped down to two mana, and now I don't have to be afraid of Archmage's charm, and so maybe that is enough that I can justify going for it at that point. That's why sandbagging the grief can be so powerful. You're adding a zero mana play to your combo turn that they, you know, I, I'm mostly thinking about Murktide in this conversation because that's the counterspell deck in the format. They don't have zero mana interaction. You do, and you can leverage that mana advantage to 
basically you can beat a perfect hand. You just need the number of free disruption pieces to override the amount of mana they can spend on disrupting you back. Mm -hmm. That's why uh, I, I keep mentioning Raghavan. That's their like that's their free spell is generating treasures off of Raghavan. So then their good hand can actually cast all of the counter spells that they need to cast against you. No, it's good insight. The mana advantage is effectively almost like card advantage in some mm -hmm. way where they can get multiple spells for less actual mana. Exactly. Less actual, fewer actual lands. Chris, maybe last point on, on this counter spell digression. How horrible does it feel if you want to cascade against a Murktide opponent? And they've got like three or four mana up, or maybe it's just like three mana and a treasure. And you grief them and you see like multiple counters, including a fluster storm. And it's just like there's nothing that you can piece together to go for it. Like, I feel like those games with any cascade deck are just like hard to get through unless you're like potentially just like jamming one cascader after another with some amount of additional counter magic to like try to fight on the stack and like maybe sneaking past them with like the violent outburst into shardless trick but even then it's just like yeah i mean sometimes they get you sometimes they've got your number sometimes they've drawn enough counter spells and enough of those counter spells cost one mana that you're not able to overload them on a turn uh most of the time your cards match up better than theirs in that situation and you know sometimes they they have it and you're not going to be able to put it together so you just pick them up and you go to the next game and you get you only need to get it over on them two times out of three and game one in particular, you're very likely to get it over on them. So, I mean, you do lose to Mark Tide sometimes. I, I went one and one against it in this last tournament. I, I, they are a very good deck. I, I, I think, you know, there's, there's three decks that I would potentially choose to take to a modern tournament and that's four color Mark Tide and living end. And you absolutely can, lose to Mark Tide, even though I, I think it is a good matchup. Sometimes they get you. It's magic. No wonder you're, you're a podcast true. host. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, next topic. When to Violent Outburst? Violent Outburst is an instant. You have a lot of opportunities to cast a spell and then cascade in the living end. So I think there's a lot of different considerations on when you might do so. And, you know, I, I, I cribbed a list. This is honestly, I think, from... Uh, Good games out of Australia. Uh, there's a nice write up there, and you know, the points they mentioned were like you can you can do it on your turn because if like your opponent's tapped out and you don't want them to untap and you don't think they're going to have force of negation, which is potentially pretty rare. Uh, you have your opponent's upkeep because then they don't get to take another draw step, they don't get the land drop, and you can potentially try to uh, force of negation their counter spell. You've got your opponent's draw step. Because let's say you have grief in your graveyard and you want to take the card they draw for turn and you're not really worried about counterspell or endurance, which seems like a cruel option. Uh, and then you have your opponent's end step. Like sometimes if you're like opponents uh, having a creature deck and you just want to get as many creatures as possible or you want to dodge like Supreme Verdict or like maybe there's you just want to conceal the living end for as long as possible. And so those are some of the, the primary options that I read and you know considered being useful. When are you thinking about using violent operas, Chris? Yeah, I, those are all pretty decent shortcuts for situations where you would do it in in certain spots. I think that I have done you know this last tournament. I living ended in each of those spots. 
for each of those reasons on that list. You know, I end of turn violent outburst against amulet and hammer. I upkeeped it when I had, you know, was was just trying to not let Merktide get another opportunity to draw a counterspell. And I also had a shardless agent in my hand. So if we lost that fight, then I'd be able to go for it again on my turn and likely resolve it. I draw stepped it with grief. I also uh, one other very important thing to keep in mind is architects. If you have like a grief and an architects in your graveyard, it can be right to do it in their upkeep. You grief them, take whatever good card they have in their hand, you architects them so that draw step doesn't turn into anything good. So if you only have one grief and one architects, that often can be the right thing to do because if they had a good card in their hand and they draw a good card for their turn, then grief can only take one of them. But architects can stop them, and if you got a lethal swing, then you've stopped them for good. But yeah, I, I think those are pretty good heuristics, and then you pick up more and more subtle things as you play the deck more. Living end into grief plus architects, that's that's six power, right? Yes. Architects is a three. So do you feel bad having to deploy the combo when you're not like presenting you know, an insurmountable board that's just going to like close out the game very quickly. That's really dependent on context and matchup, of course, as a, these things kind of always are. How likely is the game to keep going on? How, what are you afraid of? What are they doing? I mean, a lot of living ends for small numbers of creatures also come with, I am plague winding your board. And then that is good because a shriek maw that thought seizes them and kills to, you know, put six power on the board and kills two creatures you know that's an incredibly powerful spell that's likely going to uh extend the kill them or extend the game out in such a way that okay now i've put 15 power in my graveyard i can living end again and finish you off i had a living end against an amulet opponent that was for only grief i i griefed my opponent they were down to very little because they had had to mulligan against me i wasn't able to I, I had mulliganed as well and I didn't have the ability to cycle. Uh and then they played an Urza saga. So I was under pressure to living end before that got them their sideboard relic. But I was able to just violent outburst, put a grief into play, draw a curator of mysteries, cast a curator of mysteries, and because their land draw was so awkward, I just killed them with a grief and a curator of mysteries. Sometimes these things happen and you do want to look for those spots. Most of the time, you're living in for more than that, though. <laughs> I want to talk about mulligans as well, just because you said something really interesting, and that's you're mulliganing aggressively for it sounded just like lands and cascade spells, and 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 if, if no, I heard you correctly, actually, lands and or, cyclers. Sorry, yeah, that's what I meant to say, lands yeah. and cyclers, so that you have things to do on your first like couple turns, and hope that those just like draw you into a plan. Yes. Everything you do is more powerful if you've put a couple more creatures in the graveyard, because then that makes every t every turn where you have three mana deeply, deeply terrifying for your opponent, and they have to respect your ability to cast Living End. When you haven't put the creatures in the graveyard, then you are playing like the worst Rhinos deck anybody has ever put together. So the, the thing you're mulliganing for is the mana to cycle. Not too much mana. Some of the worst hands you can ever... C have four lands in them because then that leads to a, a 
cycling into your fifth and sixth land and you just don't really do anything and then you die. So you don't want, you know, two lands is like the perfect amount in an opening hand. You know, we're not always going to get the perfect opening hand. Uh, but spending turns one and two on cycling is so important that I'm going to mulligan very aggressively and I need some other thing to be going on for me to keep any hand that's not doing that i need to like know what the matchup is and like have a grief and a subtlety and be able to use them or a, a grief and a force and know that they're good or something like that and and those are pretty sketchy even then so i want to be spending one man on turn one and two man on turn two cycling things and then your your deck is the best deck in the format in my opinion when you do do that yeah, I think that in my approach to this deck, like I, I might not have been thinking about the fear that I need to put in my opponent, right? Which is just like if even if I know I don't have a violent outburst or I know I don't have a shardless agent or something like that, just simply the threat of like you said, having the mana and having a stock graveyard makes your opponent does the false tempo thing of making your opponent have to play differently in respect of your more powerful game plan. And I think it's kind of easy. I think especially as a newer player of a deck, like I was this past week with living in, which is just like, I'm not doing what I think I should be doing. And like my opponent's just going to, you know, beat me. And it's just like, well, what if I just present this idea that I have it? and make make them make me have it or like put put make them respect what i'm doing so much where like it messes up their game plan and i think that that's something that you you're reminding me of which is just like hey uh if i have the ability to instant speed cast like 15 power of creatures like that's saying a lot yep yep and also you know this is a thing that it, it comes with the plague wind attached so can your opponent cast a stoneforge mystic can they cast a ledger shredder can they put stuff onto the board or are they going to be like, I, I got to do something fancier here. I got to hold up this counter magic. Like just play as though you have the cascader at all times, because that's what your opponent is going to be thinking about. And it's just trust. And also just trust your deck. It'll deliver it. Eventually you got eight and a lot of cyclers. No, it's, that's, that's good to remember. I think for uh, us, uh, Rhino players as well, just, you know, play like you have it. So Chris, I'm gonna. You're a fellow podcaster. I know you know how to uh, how to pontificate and run with the show. I'm gonna ask you to run with the show for a while. Sure. So could could you talk about the 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 kind of the primary matchups that you're planning for? Kind of your broad, not necessarily like individual sideboard card plan, but kind of like what am I trying to prevent my opponent from doing, and what cards am I using to do that? That kind of stuff. And so you know, just uh, just run with it, man. Yeah, uh, I'm. Super happy to do that. I will try not to go too just like into the weeds on them. I, I want to give kind of the broad strokes of the matchup and the things that matter and just kind of the shape of how the games play out a little bit. So the matchup profile for Living End is one of the weirdest ones that I can think of in the format. I believe that basically every heavily played deck in the format is a good matchup for Living End, except for four color played by a competent player. Uh, <laughs> So, and that's the best deck in the format, and it's the most popular deck in the format, and it's, I, I think, your worst matchup. It has been traditionally, for me, my worst matchup. So that's a weird place to be, right? You don't want to be playing a deck that's not good against the best deck, but in this spot, I, I've i felt favored against literally everything else that's more than, like, half a percent of the metagame. So that means that I need to learn how to play against four-color to 
buy the most percentage points that I possibly can against it. And the other ones, I mean, they're not going to take care of themselves. You have to play well. You have to know your plans, but your primary plan is good against them. And the deck can carry you in a lot of ways against the bulk of the format. Uh, so I want to talk about four color first because this is the challenge. This is the, the tough one. And there's a lot of different ways that four color can be built. The one that I pay the most attention to right now is the traverse build with Risen Reef. Because whenever Jerry T posts a list, that becomes the de facto way that people show up to RCQs with that list. Uh, and so that has been the one that I've seen the most. That one I feel better against than previous versions because there's no main deck counterspell. So I think your game one is actively pretty decent against them. Uh, there's a lot going on in this matchup, though. There's there's so much in game ones against four color. Teferi is obviously the biggest assertive thing that they can do, and a lot of the game is built around the Teferi. You have to plan for it, whether that's by griefing it or having a force up, you have to be aware of the possibility of Teferi. One of the things that you're also naturally led into because of the threat of a Teferi, a top deck Teferi, and also the fact that the longer a game against four color goes the more they pull ahead and the more resources they have to beat whatever you're doing. You're encouraged to living end as quickly as possible, get some power on the board and start killing them with it. That can backfire though, because of their ability to like put a fury into their graveyard before you living end. And then if they also have a solitude, you know, a fury can beat a board of like on its own beats a board of a curator of mysteries and two architects of will you know it's just a, a three three double strike so your three threes don't matter it kills one of your guys and solitude comes in and exiles anything other than your five five hex proof so they have the ability to kind of like match smaller living ends so that's a tough thing to navigate Generally, I have found paying attention to the size of the creatures that you're cycling, making sure that you're living ending as early as you can justify, but making sure that you put out a board of hopefully a hexproof guy, hopefully a waker of waves and putting in enough stuff that they can't really challenge it. Assume that solitude is going to take one thing out. And if they have two solitudes, then uh, that's tough. Uh, subtlety is your best card in the matchup. Uh, it's very, very good to have those two game one. That's been probably why I've won most of my game ones is drawing a subtlety, and it's just very good against anything they can do. Uh, if they have counterspell, then things are a little different. You do need to be aware of it, but the deck is built in such a way to beat the card counterspell. That's a card that you're aware of and you're ready to play against decks that play a lot more counterspells. The combination of counterspell and Teferi and Endurance, and Chalice, and Supreme Verdict post-board, that is a devastating combination of cards that they can show up with. They're playing a prison deck post-board that, uh, and they have Flusterstorm too. That's, you know, one more completely insane card against you. Uh, the Jerry T version acknowledges that its game one is pretty bad against Living End and brings in nine cards or something like that. And which fortunately they're an 80 card deck so it's you know a little bit mitigated but they've also got their teferis uh they have their solitudes they have endurances and ways to find them you have to navigate through all of it and it can be a challenge i don't like bringing in naturalizes 
for the chalices because that's your only target for them and you can't afford to just be drawing dead cards in this matchup. You just kind of want to dodge the chalice. Hope, hopefully you have a force if they cast it or you, you know, chalice is a hate piece that doesn't stop your cycling. It's not like a rest in peace. You can keep filling up your graveyard. So they play a chalice. You say, okay, you play your game. Then the turn before you living end, you Odawara it or you Bozeshu it and then you, you go. Uh, but they do put you in a spot because Odawaraing a zero drop means you got to get it done before they get an, to their next main phase. So there's a lot of stuff to navigate around, and it can be intensely difficult. You have to always be conscious of endurance. That's what your subtleties are for. And you always, always, you're under a clock. It is a ticking clock of a matchup because the more cards they draw, the more lock pieces they draw, the more extra cards they draw because all the cards in their deck draw extra cards and they just accumulate this massive mana and card advantage over time. And eventually you're just completely locked out of the game. So it's the toughest matchup both in they they are strong against you and also it's very difficult to pilot properly because there's just a lot to navigate around. What mistakes are you looking for people to make? Like, let's say, you know, our, our listeners are at their FNM and maybe someone who's not expert level four color player is against them. Like, what are you, what, what holes in someone's game are you looking to exploit? Tapping mana for things that don't matter. So something like a turn five Omnath and then they have a fetch land and can like cast something else. You know, if they go like Omnath, fetch, Teferi, Time Raveler. There's a really good chance that they're going to be dead before they untap. If they play a turn two Ren and six on the draw, there's a really good chance that you are going to put enough power into play that they'll be dead before they can Supreme Verdict you. Uh, So that kind of thing, just like not understanding the threat that your living end represents at any given time and sacrificing their mana for some sort of continuing advantage in a game that's not going to last long enough for them to realize that continuing advantage. Um, those are the spots where, uh, you know, weaker players or newer players or players that just aren't experienced playing against this exact deck, where I have definitely found percentage points against them. The players who know what's up, though, who have put in the time to understand the matchup, they're not going to do that. And then that becomes much harder because, okay, do they have Flusterstorm? Do they have Counterspell? Uh, what exactly is going on over there? Uh, and then, you know, they're leveraging like, okay, I'm going to toss this fury into my graveyard. When your opponent has good creatures in their graveyard, then your living end becomes a lot worse. And players who are doing a good job of managing that and sort of like not making first moves that don't matter, they are going to buy a lot of percentage points in the matchup. Yeah, the only other thing I'll, I'll mention there. You covered it all, um, and that was impressive to watch. Sometimes I've, I have I've found... played a lot against Four Color, and <laughs> yeah. I have a lot of trauma associated with this matchup. Um, I also think that a lot of Four Color games come down to the player relying on Renin Six to bridge the gap of a sketchy land opener. And if you have a turn one grief, or maybe you're just like leaning on a force negation and you sniff out the fact that if you can answer their Ren and Six, they're like not playing magic, you will end up in this position where they can't recoup the card advantage that they're, you know, throwing away by two for wanting themselves to to maybe answer some of your creatures. And you're actually then playing the game, establishing your board and potentially swinging in for lethal before they can, you know, 
draw into a board wipe or or really do anything else. Yes. Yeah. I mean, four color has that sort of like setup stage of the game where they're an 80 card deck. They have the ability to draw like temple garden planes, you know, <laughs> and uh, the they draw out of it eventually. But those early turns are when they are the weakest and uh, being aware of that is really important. Oh, yeah, I'm 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 leading this one up. So yeah, keep uh, going, man. <laughs> yeah. So four color is hard. You got to practice against it. I had the opportunity to to test with one of my friends who is an excellent four color pilot and uh, qualified for uh, Atlanta with four color. And I definitely learned a fair bit about the matchup and felt more confident going into these tournaments. That said, yesterday I just dodged it completely in order to win the tournament, which is maybe the most effective strategy with this deck. You got to teach me how to do that. (laughs) I don't know how I did it. My matchups were a dream. I played against Hammer twice in the Swiss. I played against Amulet twice in the top eight. Uh, I played against Affinity in the Swiss and uh, really just, you know, kind of these creature decks things that are spending two mana a lot on stuff and are playing Urza Saga. And those are the matchups that you want just to kind of like put all of those together into one bubble decks that are attacking you with creatures that are not burn you. Those matchups do almost take care of themselves. And I'm generally not sideboarding more than like two cards in them. You're just doing a thing that beats them. If they are playing if they are an Urza Saga deck, which is most common for creature decks to be doing, whether it is Amulet, Affinity, uh, Hammer, then yeah, you're bringing your Force of Negations, you're taking out, or your Force of Vigors, you're taking out Subtleties and likely your Force of Negations and, and sideboarding a little more heavily. Uh, you're not taking out Subtleties against Amulet, obviously. You're, you're playing all of your Subtleties against Amulet. But you beat these onboard decks very easily by casting living end and by having some sort of instant speed interaction that's effective against them, whether that is a force of vigor or just your violent outburst, or, you know, you just leverage that in, in really gnarly ways that I think makes the matchup feel horrible for, for (laughs) opponents. And that's, that's a thing you'll run into a lot playing this deck is players at the end of the match, with kind of a dejected look on their face, like, man, I really was not hoping to play <laughs> against Living End today. Uh, and that's just uh, a fair number of your matchups are like that. One thing that I feel like a lot of small creature decks will bring in is something like just like a relic or something like that. Or And, and I have I had a surprisingly hard time just sort of like getting around that. Like, what's your primary thought process where you're like, this person can slowly eat my graveyard if I try to start cycling towards my hate, or if I ever show a moment where I'm trying to capitalize on my graveyard, then they can just pop that relic. So like, are you just trying to like, what's your, what's your plan there? Yeah. So, I mean, you look at your hand, how much do you have to cycle in order to get to your stuff? If you've got your land drops for the next turn or two, and you've got the violent outburst in hand, you maybe don't really even need to cycle in a way that lets them like get a relic activation each turn. Um, You can also use fetch lands to eat relic activations. And then the, one of the things that you can really take advantage of is the fact that living end also kills all of their creatures. So an exchange where you cast a living end they have to pop their relic to get rid of your graveyard, but you're still getting their creatures with it. 
like you still cast wrath of god yeah and then yeah. you killed their relic and then you just cast your next living end at some point when they don't have a relic in play ideally you get to cycle a street wraith maybe one other cycler like after the relic re- activation resolves and takes out your whole graveyard that doesn't always happen you're under pressure but they're like living end is often your best way to kill the relic and then you just cast another living end to kill them at some point all right what about the other big tier of the format and is it murktide yeah so this one i think is quite positive for you i have a very good record against is it murktide i feel really comfortable playing against it um grief is just a phenomenal card in the matchup that Uh, ends games a lot of times when you cast it you get to see their hand you know exactly what they have in order to stop you and if you do resolve a living end they're simply unable to beat it uh their creatures coming back from the graveyard are dragon's rage channeler ragavan or three three merc tide you know even if they're doing ledger shredder tricks to put creatures into their graveyard they're not going to be enough and your creatures are immune to their removal and so even a medium-sized living end generally is enough to take them out especially if there's a grief involved so i am very comfortable with playing this matchup i think it's good here are the ways you lose game one i think you if your hand is playable you generally only lose to a turn one ragavan you are a deck that can't kill Ragavan before it hits you a couple of times. And those treasures they get allow them to leverage a counterspell hand in order to beat your free interaction. And so as long as they have drawn like a counterspell and a spell pierce and they're dealing damage to you and they can both put threats into play and keep their counterspells up with their treasures, those are the games you can lose game one. So your responsibility is to have the living ends to assert against them and have the cards in the graveyard to make those living ends good. And grief is your number one tool at allowing you to do that quickly. Um, They are putting pressure on you. They're generally bolting your face and they're trying to like deal that 20 damage by turn five or six. And you just kind of got to not let them. If they don't have a Ragavan, as long as your hand is functional, then there's almost no way that they can deploy enough damage to put you under pressure and also hold up counter magic. And and that's why it's important to mulligan aggressively, because if you are not doing these things, then they get more opportunities to like, they can cast an expressive iteration at some point, And then, you know, the game kind of goes off the rails from there. Uh, if they're playing a game where every expressive iteration they draw is dead, then that's way better for you. And that's why you need to be putting cards into your graveyard and threatening to do a living end And they need to know that they are dead to it and have to play accordingly. So uh, that's that's the game one Uh, games two and three. They have some combination of relics and unlicensed hearses and a little more counter magic. So they do get harder. Even then, generally, it's the Raghavan games that are the ones that are very scary. And uh, the way those generally play out is they hope to put a Raghavan or other cheap threat into play, just kind of deal deal a couple of damage a turn and just hold up as much counter magic as they can and just hope. And hopefully they, ha- they have put uh, an artifact into play that is making it difficult for you to make your living end actually put power into play. Those are games that you absolutely can lose. But again, Force of Negation is really good against both their counter magic 
because you can use it to protect a violent outburst. It can stop their relics or their hearses. Grief is really good against all of their stuff they can do against you. Uh, you know, I'll bring in the fourth living end. I'll bring in a mystical dispute. And that's, you know, maybe the the dead gone on the draw. I'll bring in the two foundation breakers that I have in my sideboard. I'm not bringing in a force of vigor and just generally your strategy lines up well against them and you are heavily, heavily favored in game one. You're a little bit ahead in games two and three, but you got two shots at taking that one. And that's kind of what that matchup is about, getting one of the sideboarded games. Um, Chris, we only have you know a few minutes left and I want to give you some time to talk about you know yourself and the podcast and stuff like that. Any other deck you feel like we need to talk about in this section? Yeah, I mean, so... Uh, just to give a quick rundown, Hammer is a very good matchup. You're, anytime you draw Force of Vigor, they like are almost dead to it. Uh, the threat of Violent Outburst makes it so difficult for them to like go for their big combat. You got to watch out for Spell Pierce, uh, but that's their main card that's good against you. I've noticed a lot of mana leaks in these lists, and I... You know, I think that's because it has more application against like four color than a card like Spell Pierce does. But against you, them trying to spend two mana on a counter spell is so costly that you end up just like getting all of this time because they're holding up two mana. And uh, I think the current builds of Hammer are just not equipped to deal with Living End. So that's just a little bit of what you can expect out of the Hammer decks is that their cards don't don't line up against you. Amulet, I think, is a pretty good deck right now. And I think the good pilots are, you know, kind of chewing on some of these four color players who don't really uh, maybe aren't prepared or maybe it is just a bad matchup. And I think Amulet, you know, it was certainly well positioned at my tournament this weekend. There were two in the top eight, uh, both good pilots with good builds. uh, And you just are generally favored against them because your thing your deck does beats the thing that their deck does that leaves them having to mulligan really heavily. And Titan is a deck that sometimes it can mulligan well if it's if it's mulliganing towards its primary game plan. If it's mulliganing towards having hate cards to stop you, then it really struggles to also execute its game plan. And you have a lot of ways to stop them. You have your naturalized effects. You kill their creatures with your living end. Uh, you just have to really be careful about primeval titans in the graveyard. Don't kill yourself with a living end. That's really, really bad when you do that. Uh, Burn is, you know, one of those perennial decks in modern. It's always around. It's It was a very hard matchup for the Jund version of the deck. That was just like a traditional enemy of the deck because all you could do was put your creatures into play and hope. Uh, now with grief and force of negation, you you know each of those just as a like gain three life spell effectively, and then the grief coming back off of your living end as another gain three life. Uh, I think that it is quite a bit better for living end, but still not amazing because they're engaging with your life total. You're engaging with the board in ways that don't always matter that much. That was one of the reasons that I was happy to have late lines of sanctity in my sideboard, just because you know that matchup can get hairy. And yeah, I don't know if there are any other specific matchups that you want me to get into. I wish I could go into more detail, but I, I think we've, no, you we, know, we, this, this is going long already. I feel, I feel bad for you making you talk so much, but we appreciate it for sure. Uh, I mean, we're podcasters, of course. Stan, I, I want to get both of us back in this episode for a second. 
Um, can we talk about how it felt to play Living End? I think you've you've played it a little bit before, right? And this is honestly kind of the first time I've really played this deck. So all, all I'll say is that I picked up Living End around the time we went to Dallas. When when was that SCG open? Was that like March or April? Yeah. It, and it was like the deck existed um, in the post MH2 world, but it really felt like I was starting to pick up in the metagame at that point. And I picked it up out of curiosity because I liked playing Cascade in general. And I felt like it was such a different environment then than it is now. The people weren't respecting it quite as much. They weren't respecting it. I was getting so many free wins um, and just like... Hammer's more popular for sure then. Perhaps, yeah. And, I was, and Luris was still around, right? Uh, it was not. Okay. No, I'm thinking of Vegas when Luris was around. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But um, long story short, like it felt like back then, Living End was still a way to get an edge against unsuspecting opponents. Whereas now, I did a couple leagues and it's just like... Everyone knows how to play against this deck now. It's really proven itself as like a leader of the metagame. And I think you need to be a smarter pilot to get those edges and figure out how to outplay opponents with your proactive and reactive disruption. Because if you're, you know, kind of playing fast and loose and not really into, uh, respecting your opponent's plans at all, um, they will find a way to just like keep you from doing your thing. And, you know, Chris, as you put it, like if you're not casting Living End, you're basically not winning um, most yeah. of those games. My my primary issue with this deck um, is that it felt more like a combo deck, like compared to compared to Rhinos, which you know we all were into when we were testing it a couple of weeks ago, and you've been into it for a long while. Like Living and felt like a combo deck where I needed to like work around hate cards and work around counter magic much more than I needed to with Rhinos, because like I could do like the slightly better fair game, the slightly more interactive thing where I was stopping my what my opponent's deck was trying to do with you know more brazen borrowers with the bounce spells or more main deck creature interaction where I I mean I know that of course the the idea is to make in, invalidate their creatures altogether but it's basically saying like you know I'm going to do a little bit of interaction then I'm going to cast the cascade spell and I'm going to have some rhinos and then I'm going to bounce your stuff anything you try to play and living in doesn't do that same game plan because the cascade payoff is just better like right, like if you cascade in rhinos, it's not a free win. If you cascade with living end, it's likely pretty darn good. And I think that's kind of the big difference, right? Is like it's not a tempo mid range game, like I think rhinos ends up being, and it's much more like a, you know, it it feels like I need to set up my combo, and the only setup is cycle and then clear the way to successfully get through any counter magic or hand disruption or something like that. And I don't know, did you have fun? Do you like it? So, so here's what I'll say. It, it was hard to switch my brain from Rhino's mode into Living End mode because they're such fundamentally different decks. And like, flat out, have flat they, out, very different decks. Just because they have like these same eight cards, that, that's like where the similarities begin and end. Um, I guess Force Negation makes for 12 cards. But even though my reaction to it was a little cooler now than it was like in the spring hearing chris talk about it is a little inspiring and and it kind of just reminded me of like of the ways that um you can't necessarily treat this like an autopilot linear deck and you really need to recognize like what you are playing against and around in a way that like with cascade rhinos it's sometimes easy to do that where it's just like you have 10, 8 to 10 power on the board, and it's like your opponent has mana up, and you're just like 
think through all 10,000 cards in modern really quick. And it's just like, they have nothing. And then you can just go for it. With living end, um, you actually get to leverage more information since you're griefing them. Um, but because you're not interacting with the board in the same way and you're not making those temp- tempo plays, you just need to, I think, prepare your plan and your counterplay sometimes like a few turns in advance than what Rhinos really asks of you, which is kind of like just letting you... In my experience, like Rhino sort of tells you to like maybe think a turn advanced, but really you really need to make the right choice like in the moment when you have board presence or like you know a couple cascade spells in your hand and decide when you want to sequence them. Uh, I mean, Chris, you obviously like this deck. I mean, you've been playing it for years. Uh, I mean, I feel like I need to push through. Like, I, I have the cards. Like, I basically after I purchased Rhinos, I was like, what? I mean, I can get the rest of this deck for pretty darn cheap. And so I, I finished off Living End as well. And I think it's just one of those things where it's like, I have to be okay with a lot of my games being, this is going to be a long one. And I need to figure out how to do the same thing multiple times where I'm going to stock a graveyard, cast a Living End, uh, make them waste their Relic, and then rebuild as quickly as possible or have a plan to rebuild extremely quickly and then do it again. Or I'm going to get to that Ottawara and then bounce the thing and then untap and and do my thing it's just like being more patient and like you said stan like it's when you're playing a deck like this you're like i should be doing this quickly and i should be winning quickly and i don't think that's the reality of the situation all the time chris do we sound like crazy people or have we effectively picked up what you've been trying to teach us no i think i think that's pretty much right you threaten to do it very quickly right and that's there. That's hovering over the game the whole time. The number of times you cascade on turn three, it's pretty high in game ones. It's very low in postboard games. And the postboard games are entirely about navigating their responses to the powerful thing that you're doing. And it's not easy and it's not always obvious how you're supposed to be doing it you have several different ways to answer what they're doing they also have free spells that stop what you're doing because that's what modern is now and sometimes you see their hand and you have a lot more information sometimes you don't and you gotta kind of collect from their plays what they have going on and what their plan is in the game um you're aiming towards your one big turn. And that that's a play style that really appeals to me that I do really enjoy is like figure out how to get to this spot where I beat my opponent in a single high leverage exchange. And that doesn't appeal to everyone. That's not fun for everyone. And if you play this deck and you just like don't really put it together because you're not enjoying yourself, then I, you know, I'm not going to try to evangelize you. I'm not going to try to convince you to play living end. But if that, type of playstyle does appeal to you where you are not uh really playing magic where you know and and I don't want to show up to modern and play magic in a way that I'm casting spells for mana and <laughs> doing things one at a time it's just not a winning strategy in a format where four, four color exists right I I need to cheat I need to play a Yu-Gi-Oh deck and that's what you're doing with Living End well, while you might not be an uh, evangelist for Living End for everybody, can you please talk about your podcast, uh, your internet presence, what you you and Lee and everyone have been you know doing with the Grindcast over the past, what, 250 plus episodes now? Yeah, yeah. We passed 250 a couple of weeks ago. Heck yeah. Yeah, I've 
got a podcast originally with Collins Mullen, now with a very good friend, Lee McLeod. We have a, a kind of different style. We're, we're a little more loosey-goosey. But not that loose. I think you guys are pretty structured. You, you have a good conversation every week. Yeah, but it is more focused on whatever we're finding kind of interesting at that particular moment. And we you know, take the information that we have and we kind of just talk about it given our combined uh, very long histories of playing Magic the Gathering. Uh, I, I think we do a good job. I know that some people don't. It's not their cup of tea, but it is the MTG Grindcast. Uh, look it up. We Our episodes drop pretty much every Thursday. We uh, Thursday competition. Yeah, well, yeah, we record Tuesdays. I try to get it edited, try to get it out. You should usually get it there. Um, we'd love for you to give us a listen. My way of describing it is generally like you are coming to hang out with me and Lee. And so if you like us and we would be people that you would be friends with, then I think you will enjoy it. If, you know, we wouldn't be in your friend group, then, you know, maybe stick with stick with the dive down. But what, what people, oh, hold on. If, if they're friends with us, <laughs> they're friends with you because we're, you know, we're, we listen every week. So, uh, and we, we wanted to work with you for a while. So we're really glad to have you on. So, yeah. Uh, Check out Grindcast if you haven't already. Uh, it's likely we have a large audience overlap, but uh, you know we uh, we will constantly evangelize for you. Yes, well, and I have definitely recommended y'all to people. We have referenced uh, episodes of yours on the cast, and this was great. I'm I'm so happy that I got to come on, and hopefully, we will get y'all onto one of our episodes at some point soon. Yeah, whenever it makes sense. Yeah, and, and we can kind of just like talk about how bad we are decks as opposed to your <laughs> your, your usual guests who are, are masters of archetypes and one of the benefits of having played magic for way too long is you just end up like running into people and becoming friends with people who are much better than you at cards it's, and it's like this this person won the mocks shane top eight in an rcq once <laughs> <laughs> well okay so you messaged me yesterday early in the day and said, Hey, you know, Dave's going to be out. Would you like to come on and talk about living end? And in my head, I, I said, yeah, of course I'd love to. But in my head, I was like, man, I don't know if I, you know, the last like thing that I did was make the finals of an open with Jund living end years ago. And then, you know, it's like, you know, I've, I've top aided local tournaments with it or whatever. And, uh, then I was just like, well, I guess I got to put on my battling hat and, <laughs> Six hours later, had won the tournament that I was playing in. So good, good timing on that one. Yeah, and and you're welcome for that. Yes, I, I think we deserve a lot of credit for motivating you to win. Um, <laughs> I actually, at the very beginning of the tournament, I told my friends, I don't really even know if I want to play in this tournament today. Okay. So you know, by the end, I was feeling a lot better about it. Love to hear it, and 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 really, congratulations. Um, you're a great Magic player. You know. Collins is like a wunderkind, just like, we'll throw 61 off cards in a Luchu deck and win a tournament. Lee is just like the combo master of all formats. I just love you know, magic. That's just, that's you, my whole you deal. You just love magic and and you're humble about how good you are. And um, th thank you for your time today. This is a real pleasure. And I said it earlier and I'll say it again. Thank you for making Grindcast. It was uh, a really important show for me as a magic player and uh, as a content creator. Well, thank you. But that's enough gushing. Let's wrap up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And of course, make sure you subscribe to MTG Grindcast. You will learn a lot from them. They talk about formats that we don't cover. You guys talk about standards sometimes. Every once in a while. Less lately. 
Yeah. And I've been grateful for the infrequency of that. If you use Apple Podcasts, please leave both of our shows a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to The Dive Down or just reach out to us in general, you can tweet us at The Dive Down, all one word, or email thedivedown at gmail.com. If you'd like to support our show, you can find us over at patreon.com slash the dive down. What's the Grindcast Patreon again, Chris? Uh, patreon.com slash MTG Grindcast. But really just follow us on Twitter first. Listen to a couple episodes. We mentioned the podcast. Uh, we mentioned the Patreon every once in a while. But that's less important. Just listen to some episodes. We'd appreciate that. Also, shout out to Mana Traders for sponsoring our show. If you sign up for Mana Traders using promo code THEDIVEDOWN15, all one word, you'll get 10% off your first two months of renting Magic Online cards. Also get some amazing shaving soaps, body soaps, fragrances, and more at Barrister and Man using the code THEDIVEDOWN15. That does get you 15% off your first order and save some money on Paper Magic cards over at Nerd Rage Gaming with code DIVE8. That gets you 8% off your order at NRG. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and listen to Grindcast! <laughs>